0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Negotiating Ideas. This month commemorates the podcast's first anniversary. I established Negotiating Ideas podcast in June 2022 to examine ideas related to liberty, pluralism, and democracy. To help us comprehend, I was joined by intellectuals and authors from across the world, including Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey, United States, Australia, and Europe. The Negotiating Ideas Podcast's one-year anniversary marks a significant milestone in its journey to explore and discuss numerous perspectives. The podcast has been a venue for engaging discussions and thought-provoking ideas. I have got the chance to explore a variety of topics, obtaining fresh insights and improving our awareness of the world around us. Through its commitment to encourage balanced and diverse dialogue, the podcast has effectively established a space where other points of view may be explored and listeners can challenge their own assumptions. As it approaches its one one year anniversary, the podcast focuses on the bright future ahead, continuing to be a source of intellectual engagement. I would like to thank all of you for being part of the podcast and everyone who has been contributing to it. And coming back to today's session, uh, I'm honored to have Dr. Hassan Abbas today with me. He is a distinguished professor of international relations at the Near East South Asia Strategic Center, NISA, National Di- uh, Defense University in Washington, DC. Previously, he also served as a chair of department of regional and analytical studies at the National Defense University. He was also an advisor to Asia Society. Most recently, he authored a book titled The Return of Taliban Afghanistan After Americans Left in 2023. This book delves into aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban's revival. Uh, it's a compelling account which dives into political, social, humanitarian ramifications of Taliban regaining control of Afghanistan. It investigates consequences of human, women's rights, governance, regional dynamics and global security. The book sheds light on numerous difficulties that have arisen in the aftermath of American departure and provides a vital insight into Afghanistan and its people's uncertain future um it's an honor to have you sir um good good morning to you and welcome to negotiating ideas
1: thank you so much umar i'm really honored and looking forward to our conversation
0: so uh, the very first introductory question would be give us an overview of your book um who are the audience of the book Uh, i'm asking this question because as i read as i read the book i realized there are for example similarities between your book and certain, for example, reports which are coming from international organizations, including United Nations. So if there is a theoretical contributions, what are they? If there is a new approach that you suggest to, to the readers uh, wh- while studying Taliban or comprehending Taliban, what is that?
1: Thank you so much. Uh, first and foremost, um, I really like your introduction in terms of this, this podcast and you're looking at ideas um, to engage with our own ideas, to reconsider our ideas um, and to debate um, with the purpose of um, finding new pathways to where the truth lies, and the biggest challenge of this day and age is that the reality and the real truth is is camouflaged in so many areas because of polarizations at a global level, because of disconnect between those um, who have a lot and between those who have nothing uh, and and desperations and frustrations of the ordinary and the demographic changes and yeah. this book is in fact not just from my perspective about um, Taliban. It is about a larger issues uh, taking place in the broader Muslim world in terms of battles between the extremists and conservatives and and, and those who, who want some progress and reform and how the younger generation in various Muslim societies are trying to tackle with these issues. So the main story, but for to be able to explain these things I use the story of Taliban and the contemporary Taliban. And I emphasize this because there are some excellent books on Taliban's history, uh, what happened before um, the last 20 years of Afghanistan, how a new Afghanistan was built, or at least uh, a valiant effort was put in. Uh, But but where Taliban and where Afghanistan and the region stands after August 2021, that is the main core uh, of the book. And I wanted to go deeper into the varieties of Taliban, uh, rather than just looking at them as a monolithic one group. Because for a Western audience, uh, as soon as they even see a person at times, some of them who are not fully aware of it, they'll see even a person like me and you with our beards. uh, First, Mm -hmm. immediately a frame comes into mind. Um, Then they see a headgear, um, a green or black or, or white. A second stereotyping comes into play. And third, then they think they are cavemen and extremists and their religion is teaching them all the violence so those the, I, part of the effort to, in this book is also to, to challenge some of those assumptions secondly the audience of the book is global um of the my of course publisher is an academic publisher so academic publishers and i'm very grateful to yale university press they are publishing the second book of mine on taliban specifically the previous mm-hmm. one was taliban revival in which I'd explained the historical uh, uh, aspects and what was happening during the reconstruction, during the Tarzai government and beginning of the Ashraf Ghani government. And this time around, my publishers um, discussed with me, forget about the history, not that we can read or we should really forget about the history, but in terms of the book, that it had to be very contemporary. It should start from the day Taliban came back into Afghanistan. Mm. And the themes that I picked and my last aspect on this, the themes that I picked were, one, Uh, what was that negotiation in Doha that led to the return of the Taliban? Because although Taliban committed a lot of violence, a lot of um, conflict also, but their return to Afghanistan was not just because of their military success. It was Mm -hmm. because there was a peace deal, inverted commas, conducted in Doha, which allowed Taliban to negotiate. uh, In in fact, it It seems they actually um, did very well on the negotiating table, which no one was expecting. We always thought of them as warriors with their swords, let's say, in our mindset, or with their guns. But they did quite well in Doha. Uh, And what were the compulsions from from the U.S. point of view? Um, How did the government in Afghanistan fare of of Ashraf Ghani? That is one aspect. Secondly is, when they walked into Kabul, um, what was the scene like? Uh, What were they faced with? Were were they prepared for it? Because they're at the end of the day, at best, I mean, at first they were total terrorists. At best, they're insurgents who wanted to push out the foreign government. But when now they are governors, was there anything in their training which prepared them to be governors? That's a big question. How are the young people thinking about it? And last but not the least, whether Taliban, I wanted to tackle the question, have Taliban changed? In some ways they have, I think. Uh, But... Hmm. Are all those changes positive? Not necessarily. And what the future holds for the region, how the world is looking at them differently. These were some of the themes. And my very last point on this overview, I still make a case by even exposing them, exposing their bigotry, exposing their hypocrisy, exposing their internal challenges. I still make a case, engage with them. Because Mm -hmm. why engage with them? Not because we necessarily like them and necessarily they're good engage with them because we tried every other method with them already. We went to war with them. The strongest military in the world was there. NATO was there. EU was there. We tried everything. We tried to build a new Afghanistan and there were big mistakes committed. Some of these warlords and some of these thugs and corrupt people we engaged with, um, they and they could not really turn around Afghanistan. So we tried every other way, money, war, violence. Now, Maybe if we engage with them, some of their pragmatic elements may win out. That might be our best option. That's the whole story.
0: Uh, these are very critical issues, and I think they were out there in public square. and People were discussing, policymakers were discussing. So I, I would like to come to most of them one by one. But another question that comes to my mind is about your characterization of Taliban as a new social movement. If I quote one of the sentences from the book, it's, uh, the book contends that for all practical purposes, the prevalent Taliban ideology falls under the category of new religious movements. The framework of new religious movements, that's the movements offering alternative spirituality, um, or that are peripheral to dominant religious culture, provides us with opportunity to understand how religious groups evolve based on different societal factors. So, what triggered me here is how can we how can we Taliban how can we call Taliban a marginal uh, mm-hmm. vis-à-vis a dominant religious culture? So now, of course, level of analysis matter here. You might be considering Muslim world in general as a as a dominant Muslim culture, but and then Taliban um, uh, as the emergent. But what about Afghanistan? Do you think also t- Taliban are emergent um, within the uh, the broader Culture of Afghanistan. Uh, if so, how can a movement last for twenty, uh, over thirty years? Uh, we are dealing with the Taliban over thirty years, and uh, and, and and even within the Islam world, um, of course, we have to avoid this simplistic debate uh, of uh, painting Islam as a as a, a very closely aligned with radical ideologies. But one of the critical uh, challenges of the Muslim world was how to address. Uh, the issue of tourism um, and their world. So, since nine eleven, at least, uh, the Muslim world has been struggling, and there has not been so far a solution to it.
1: Thank you so much. It's a very thoughtful question, and I really appreciate it, especially uh, because um, I have so far given like maybe thirty interviews on the book, and uh, this question was not posed to me. And this question is borrowed uh, from uh, from a very important chapter in the book, which is on the urbanism and. Uh, and taliban narrative so i'm I'm delighted and i also um, use this chapter in this argument as kind of my theoretical framework because the book was kind of a cross between an academic book and some ways more a contemporary trade book i couldn't put this chapter or my frame right up front in the introduction chapter like it is done in most academic books even though i mention it uh, but but this is an important point i'm making so first and foremost I'm offering this new framework uh, not necessarily that I'm convinced that it has turned out to be a new religious movement, but I'm offering this um, frame, which is often used in the Western uh, scholarship. The new religious movements also can 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 be built upon cults. And when I say a cult, uh, which is very contemporary, they borrow many things from mainstream Islamic worldview, because at the end of the day, Uh, the Taliban movement are borrowing from Islamic uh, uh, principles or teachings that are in vogue in South Asia. In my frame, at least is the broader South Asia. And I explained it with link to the Diobandi movement. And Diobandi movement also is a very new movement. Diobandi movement is a Sunni, a Hanafi movement, uh, but it it had political connotations. Um, Just for your audience, very briefly, it started off more than 100 years ago in a city close to actually about i think 100 miles from new delhi in india today deoband where this madrasa seminary was built which had political goals the, the purpose of the deobandi movement was it was more anti colonial movement people were looking the muslims in india under subjugation uh, uh, were looking for ways out of of political resistance and that's how the deoband school came into being however the Dioban school had huge issues with the Sufi-oriented Muslims or or mystics who somehow or the other for some time were engaging with the colonial master, the British at that time, uh, because of the nature of the the mysticism and the Sufi uh, thought. Uh, They were uh, uh, non-confrontational in a military sense. So Diobandi said, no, we are going to confront and we are going to challenge. That's how this movement started. When India and Pakistan were divided, um, they, there was a division between the Indian Diobandis, Indian Muslim Diobandis and Pakistani Diobandis. On the Pakistani side, Dioband led to more of a political movement where some political parties like jamiat Ulama Jamaat-e-Islami, others, uh, which were kind of de- borrowing from Dioband, became very active. They became partners of the military dictatorships in Pakistan as well and the military establishment. And then comes the last 40 years or so, the Afghan Jihad of 1980s, where these Deobandi madrasas in Pakistan were used as a tool to influence politics in Afghanistan. Um, for Afghanistan, historically, I would argue, and in the book I have mentioned, Afghanistan was the hub of the, the mystics and the Sufi Muslims. And I'm not depicting Sufi Muslims as different from uh, from the Sunni Barelvis, for instance. Uh, but it was pluralistic. Uh, Shias were thriving in Afghanistan as well. Uh, Keep aside the Hazara story, which is a tragedy, story of tragedy. Hazaras have, because they were seen different, because of their features and others, they were always, uh, always oppressed. But by and large, keeping aside uh, Abdul Rahman and some of those, uh, keeping aside, I'm saying not because they deserve to be ignored, but for the for the purpose of this argument. Uh, the Shias were there ethnically, Afghans were very different. It was a pluralistic society. Um, I often tell my students, read Nama. And you'll see when uh, Babur, the king Babur, came uh, and built a new empire in South Asia, he was always uh, not only um, missing the gardens of Kabul, he was missing the libraries of Kabul as well. So every major mystical movement, Sufi movement, whether it's Sunni or Shia, had its base in Afghanistan. That's what I would say historically, in principle, was the mainstream Islamic thinking in South Asia. Same was the case in India and Pakistan. Now, this last 40 years of conflict, especially, first with Soviet Union, then insurgency and terrorism, this has changed the color and shape of religion. That's why I say Taliban borrowed a few things from religion, borrowed other things from pure Pashtun tribalism, and that too also not mainstream Pashtun tribalism, um, of hospitality and um, challenge against the outsider. And there's so many other uh, features which are not, all negative there there's some amazing uh, characters of pashtuns and i am i say this as a i'm an american but i is in my. i'm originally from pakistan i can tell you i i grew up uh, i'm from punjab but grew up in northwest frontier province we used to call it or i have served as a police chief also in that region i have been a great a big beneficiary of hospitality friendship love from pashtuns so i know the pashtun culture and pashtunwali and they are amazing people but what I'm referring to is in some of the uh, border mountainous areas, some elements of tribalism are very, very problematic. Taliban borrowed from those as well and came up with something which is new because they it's, it's a shortcut uh, Islam also, if I may call that. That's what I want scholars to think about looking at the Taliban movement differently, because at one level, they are political animals. They want to power. They are not about the uh, projection of the Islamic principles and ideals primarily. They are about power. Uh, They were about insurgency because that's how they were gaining uh, credibility. When it comes to tribal norms, they went to the most orthodox and conservative elements. That's why I thought, how do I understand this movement? And I put in this frame, is this a new religious movement? I'm still not convinced that it necessarily is, but it is going maybe in that direction. The future will tell. But that's that's the my general response to your question.
0: Sure. Uh, still, uh, i I may say that uh, if the is, has a long history of over one hundred years, and Taliban heavily draw from it, uh, plus some other uh, radical ideologies, uh, which has been I mean historically uh, in the region across from Af- Afghanistan and Pakistan. So. I, I wonder whether we can call it marginal, uh, because uh, even in the political history of Afghanistan, uh, I mean, beyond Taliban, um, since uh, the independence, of Allāh, and has uh, subsequent government, uh, those who were trained in the urban madrasas and subcontinent, uh, like Mujaddidi families. Um, they were very dominant in shaping the constitution's laws, policies, um, even during the, the long, peaceful period of Zaire Shah. Um, those who were from the Ubandis, they had uh, they had the influence on politics. Anyway, but how can we now comprehend or situate Taliban within the broader... Uh, Islamist militant groups. Um, there are varieties of these militant groups. So, uh, uh, one of the interesting books that I, I like in, uh, about political Islam is, is, the, is the book by uh, two authors, um, Bukhari, Kamran Bukhari, and Farid Sansai on political Islam and age of globalization where they study a spectrum of political Islam movements and of course all of them do not fall into the very radical ones they study they have a chapter on on the Taliban but Taliban is really an anomaly in that uh, because uh, you have on one hand Al-Qaeda and very transnational global jihadists on the other hand you had the secularist you can say the, the, the Islamist movements but Taliban are coming in between but But the fact is that can we say Talibans behave like that of Iran while they contend themselves within the territorial boundaries of the nation-state, but still the Islamists in Iran also had an urge to export their revolution. Uh, And that's why Iranian policy is heavily now in the Middle East based on religious factor. Now, Taliban also, of course, it's not like al-Qaeda that many may may argue, but the fact is that they are at at the core of their Policies and ideology, they will continue to export this ideology. Now, at this moment, they host all regional and tr- transnational movements uh, of jihadists. Al Qaeda is there. The recent UN report, uh, TTP is there. The, the Central Asian outlets are there. So, do you think we should uh, we should also move beyond the, the fact that Taliban are not like uh, the global jihadists and they do not a threat, but the fact that with, with these examples we see they are exporting their ideology.
1: Another set of excellent questions, and I'll uh, thank you very much for reminding me about your point on the marginal issue. Uh, I, I agree with you. I, I'll not call them marginal in a political sense at all. I, I think they have significant support. May not be a majority if uh, because the only way we would figure that out is if we will hold an election today. Um, I think they will. Uh, get a lot of votes from maybe rural areas um, in the Pashtun areas. But elsewhere, if people are given a free choice, um, Taliban will not pick, find, uh, make the government. And that was, I think, Ashraf Ghani's point when he was yeah. constantly saying, let's agree to the constitution, let's come and be part of the political process. Taliban never wanted that because they know some of what they are doing is by negotiating deals with various tribes. It is by use of force. It is by use of clerics, by use of their religious networks. They know that if people are really free to choose in Afghanistan, Taliban will not win the election. That's what I mean by this, that they are not dominant culture in that sense. Afghans Mm. are those who will vote against them are good Muslims, uh, practicing Muslims, but they're not like Taliban's uh, Islam. In that Mm. sense, uh, from a religious point of view, they are marginal. Another example, I think within Kabul, there are divisions. Those in Kabul today... uh, holding many cabinet positions, and I talked to some of them. Um, they, they in, in one question, I was asking a very important uh, leader of Taliban about girls' education. And he, after some debate, said to me, "Hassan, my own daughter goes to school in a Gulf country and she now wants to go for PhD in Turkey. So you think I'm against women's education? I said, but you're not challenging this, your own folks. Mm. There are other Taliban sitting in Kandahar. If I, if you read um, Mr. Ishaq Zai's or Abdul Hakim Ishaq Zai, the Chief Justice, new book, or uh, uh, Mullah Habatullah, their worldview is not mainstream Islam at all. This is very extreme. That's what I mean. The Kandahar, not Kandahari, because Kandahari Taliban is a different group. But some of those who hold power now in Kandahar, I would like to argue they are uh, marginal in an ideological sense. Politically, they are dominant today, but religious point of view. But excellent question you have posed because that helps me uh, explain that. The uh, Thank you very much for mentioning uh, the book by Kamran uh, Bukhari and Farid Sanzai. Both are my very good friends. Um, and we have worked together and discussed and debated these things together. They, their book is excellent um, uh, theologically. And I've I, I quoted Kamran, Khan, uh, Kamran uh, Bukhari. Uh, Kamran Khan is a well-known Pakistani journalist. Kamran Bukhari in in my um, initial frame as well. The question of where to place them, they are not al-Qaeda, of course. They are not even ISIS or ISK, Islamic State of Khurasan. In fact, I'm convinced Islamic State of Khurasan poses them the real challenge. That's why if Taliban have changed or come towards the middle, it is because of the pressure from the new extreme uh, uh, group, which is ISK which is not only transnational, but which is far more violent. Taliban were violent as well, Taliban killed many Hazaras, still they are pushing them on the side. Taliban are, although they are saying politically, we will not take revenge. I think they mean it. They don't want to. But what can they do with their young folks who were always inspired, oh, these are the bad guys. They, whenever they'll get a chance in their small village, in a small street, they will take revenge and they are taking it. So. The, the difference what i want to explain is in this range of groups there are differences and so they are not isk they are not daesh but they're also not like jamaat islami or ulama jama islam of pakistan uh, they um, uh, they are still in principle those in kandahar are anti-sufi but i was told i met a very famous sufi family members in kabul who still are going and living in kabul and they were mentioning I'll not name them because of their security. They mentioned that even now, this is last month, um, when they went to have a conversation about actually their spirituality and there was a uh, uh, there was a gathering of prayers, they said Taliban came in. Probably they wanted to watch. They sat on the side. Um, they participated. They raised their hands for du'a also. And since then, there was no attack on, on the Sufis. But we also know, uh, in addition, that Daesh or ISK attacked uh, a famous uh, uh, Sufi mosque uh, where both Shias and Sunnis go in Kabul. Um, they attacked uh, many Shias and Taliban are providing secure, in Kabul at least, they're providing security to these Sufi mosques in other places. So I would try to keep Taliban in a different group and that's an anomaly. We, we don't exactly know where they are placed. That's why I'd mentioned the idea of, is this a totally new movement or some new reality? I would argue, last point, many Muslim movements congratulated them when Mullah Habibullah announced this new Islamic emirate has been created. But neither the Pakistani religious political parties have really shown much inclination, although they have links with them, uh, or any global movements. And also in, in Central Asia, I had a chance to go to Uzbekistan as well in Turkmenistan. I asked many people about this, what they view of Taliban and why they are engaging with them. In fact, they are kind of quite friendly, both these countries, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. And they are quite, the Islam in Central Asia is still quite secular Islam in a sense. And I asked them, so is it out of, are they fascinated by the Taliban worldview? They said, no, we are engaging with them because we are fearful. Because small components, small elements of Muslims in our countries, in those Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, are becoming radical, more extreme Sharia-oriented. And by Sharia, I must explain. Sharia is not something many Westerners think it is this book of Quran, Al-Hakim, or the Hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. No. Sharia is a interpretations of jurists. It can be an extreme set of scholars who can come up with a book and say, this is Sharia. And that Sharia may have nothing to do with the core Islam. So, Sharia is a Dependent term, it is not the mainstream divine Islam as most Muslims believe it. The point I'm making, people are still fearful for them, from them because they worry what if they'll start exporting it. And last but not the least, Amullahibatullah, when he came to Kabul, I think he came to Kabul twice or maybe thrice. One visit was potentially, I think initially a secret visit, but two visits we know about. And he made a speech, and his first sentences were that speech for those who want to research. It is on YouTube with English subtitles also. He said, well, the Muslim Ummah is very happy uh, because of our rise. Well, that's not true. I think there's no empirical way to say the global Muslim world was very happy with the victory of Taliban. Not at all. Most of the conservative Orthodox elements were somewhat happy. Some were happy just because they wanted to see U.S. and the Western world leave Afghanistan. The point, again, I'm making at this moment Taliban potentially are giving space to some of these extremist groups. We know about ETIM. We know about tariq taliban Pakistan soldiers there. But I would like to believe, and so far I have not seen any evidence, that they are intentionally hosting uh, any militant terrorist organization as an organization with the purpose that they can conduct any regional or international terrorism. Um, the counter argument I know is uh, what was Zawahiri doing there? Zawahiri was a very important friend of the Haqqanis and, and they wanted at a personal level to help them. But I am not because this is one of the deals they made in Doha. Top leader after top leader of Doha's uh, in of Taliban said in Doha to United States and others, we will not allow our land to be used for terrorism globally or regionally. I think the day this changes, this will become. very complicated story for 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 the taliban at this time i think they're giving space to them they're not going against even ttp tariq taliban pakistan even though the track record of ttp terror in pakistan is huge and pakistan is challenging them taliban want to keep their good relations with these militant groups because they think they may need them again if they have to resist outsiders or if they get into a war again but they are not actively allowing or telling these groups, go and conduct terrorism in Pakistan, or in Central Asia, or go and attack uh, somebody, uh, someplace in Europe. That's but, the difference between ISK and Daesh.
0: Sure, but the recent report by United Nations uh, shows the other image, contrary to what you say. For example, it shows that how Al-Qaeda has not just provided space there, but they have been investing and in training Islamists. They have established factories to produce, again, this ammunitions uh, for blasting. Um, so it, it it is more than uh, hosting. It is creating a kind of symbiotic relationship. As these groups are actively at terrorist, they have not been retired. Like TTP is not retired. And then the Taliban say, well, you're retired. You're here for we, we can host you for some couple of years. And later on, we might use you for any kind of other um, insurgency that we may have. So it's really challenging. Now, connected to this, I also wanted to highlight the fact that whenever we talk about Taliban and to what extent they have been moderated, we tend to um, provide individuals' examples. Oh, well, X or Y, Ahmad or Mahmoud, say to me that well they are pro-education but uh, shall we is this not misleading methodologically instead of considering Taliban as an institution now at this moment or as a movement, we go down to the level of an individual who did, who may not have an influence over decision making. So that's why I'm saying if Taliban is an institution now, the only characterization which might perfectly suits them, could be a sultanistic regime. I borrowed this term from Max Weber and some other uh, uh, sociologists and political scientists like Alfred D. Stephen has been using it. Uh, so, a sultanistic regime is a one that it's uh, extremer than a totalitarian regime, wherein the leader have ultimate discretion and then and institutions may not have autonomy of changing the decision. So here you have the leadership, Mullah Hayatullah or the circle, who sets the the goals and no one dares to change them? So in that case, it doesn't matter if two three Taliban may send their girls, uh, their daughters to school. It, it doesn't because it doesn't change anything on the grounds in terms of policy. So why we are not considering Taliban in terms of an institution as a whole rather than building up hoops on on those who may not change anything?
1: All important points. I'll give you an example in this way that one. we are still in the very early phase of the Taliban rule. They still are struggling. So they are still not have been able to really make Afghanistan as a new state per se. That's point number one. For instance, um, if if we had gone to Afghanistan in 2005, uh, all the things that President Hamid Karzai at that time or Shavani later on wanted to do, um, hardly 10% of those things were established. We had all the money. We had all the intentions. We still couldn't do that. So, I, if today I, someone will ask me whether uh, President Hamid Karzai or Ashraf Ghani really wanted it to go bad. No, they, they wanted it. Uh, uh, they were struggling. They wanted to build a new Afghanistan. Uh, did that in some ways, but failed in many ways as well. But because of those failures, I cannot say that they all they wanted was to fail. So, we, and you're right also, we cannot pick uh, individual cases, but in cases where field research, for example, is hard, We pick on, this is more of a journalistic style, style. we pick on some stories which give us an insight. On school issues, uh, I think you're right, and the UN is also saying that. And the the UN latest report on ISK and others is being debated upon as well. Some people think the information is a bit dated. Uh, but, but that is being debated, and I would, by and large, give credibility to what UN says, uh, because they, they are looking at it from an objective point of view. But some of the elements of the, the, this latest report are being, uh, being strongly discussed and debated also. The, in four districts I'd heard, or five if I may be forgetting, when Mullah Hebatullah had banned education, those four or five districts continue to allow girls to go to school. It was they say, And one of the leading members told me it was only when it came out in a very important, I'll not mention the organization came up with a very important report saying, look, and that report was intended in a good way. They said, Mullah Abdullah wants all schools to be closed. There are four or five districts where girls oh, are still going to school. And they then those schools were closed because Taliban say, oh, really, some schools are still open. I would argue The benefit of doubt I want to give um, to uh, to Taliban at this time, or Afghanistan, is that there are two realities. One reality is in Kabul and one reality is in Kandahar. Kandahar is dominant, politically policy-driven at this time, but the challenges that we are seeing coming from Kabul are also huge. Another example I'll give you. If we go by the Taliban's original model of Mullah Omar, power base in Kandahar, uh, very dogmatic and conservative, no engagement with anyone, Although I think he had met just a Pakistani leader and a Chinese foreign minister at that time. Today's Afghanistan, when Taliban went back into Kabul, they never burnt down Kabul. If they had burnt down Kabul, or even the government palaces and ministries, I would say, they don't want to engage with the new institutions. The There is a the new Afghanistan. Those in but, but Kabul are, come again uh, on this point.
0: They have not burned uh, buildings, but they have dismantled many institutions of the state. That means that they have been deconstructing the state. For example, Attorney General Office, it's gone now. Independent Human Rights Commission, it's gone now. Independent Administrative Reform Commission, it's gone now. Women's Ministry, it's gone now. So many other independent agencies, directorates, there are no more. So... and deliberately they undermine the state, so well, we say they are new, they, let's give them time but but they don't you think these some of these destructions that they do these are deliberate, they are rational, they know uh, wh- why these institutions matter, but still they do that
1: Very good point. they out of 30 ministries or organizations, of course human rights, they would never argue, they would never support those, um, some of the other rule of law institutions, but at the same time, Uh, In the Ministry of Interior, uh, I often give an example to people. Even getting the people, the way they are are organized in police and military, that was something very uh, uh, alien to to the Taliban's worldview. I'm talking about the original dogmatic Taliban worldview. People in uniform, the way they are organized, uh, the way some rule-based things are going, the way the Afghan bank is working, they are now, of course, they want money. So that's why they want to engage with them. They had put in one person as head of the Afghan New State Bank, um, and then they changed him because they got a relatively better person there. So in health sector also, the, I'm just saying it's not exactly that they have completely tried to destroy. They, even if they're 30 or 40 institutions or 30 or 40 percent which they don't like because those are pluralistic, more democratic institutions, they want to just keep them aside. There are others, 40-50%, which they find useful, that they are adapting to those. This is different from the Taliban of the 1990s. I'm not saying they have become progressive or reform-oriented, but Mm. they are different from the 1990s Taliban, which was very dogmatic, very warrior-like, very orthodox. This time around, and one of the reasons is, many Taliban leaders in Kabul, um, previously all they knew was between, they had moved between Kandahar and uh, uh, ...and Kabul and maybe to quetta Now they lived in Doha, UAE, Turkey. There is some element in young Taliban. My last point on this. Young Taliban, most of these foot soldiers today... ...were not even born when Mullah Umar was thrown out of Afghanistan. They, they are 17, 18, 19, 20 years of age. Uh, Mullah Umar was there 23 years ago. The point I'm making, these young people have not gone to the madrassas... ...deobandi the madrasas, or elsewhere... Um, They have they they have opted for Taliban worldview because there were lack of options in their area. They are the ones who might be more open to a better Afghanistan, which is not authoritative and oppressive like what Kandahar today wants. And that's where my chance of hope comes in. And last point on this is at the end of the day, if let's say, that what I'm saying that the kind of some of the positive things that I am trying to, I'm forcing myself to see not that I like those I'm forcing myself to see because the alternate is another series of wars and conflict the last series of war for 20 years never took us anywhere this time around at least we should be able to maybe in three years from now if if the kind of negative assessments which might turn out to be accurate if those are given more preference uh, then we will jump into war again and Taliban will again become the insurgents and, uh, and the new heroes. Give them a chance. Let's see if they fail. The international community and especially the regional countries have a far better option And the regional countries. I will hold more accountable. Pakistan and their support for Taliban. Some of the regional countries, China. These countries will have to put their house in order in terms of their policy in Afghanistan. Currently, each of the regional countries is again playing their own games. They want more resources, maybe some, the minerals or some of the trading opportunities. They'll have to put their house in order. Otherwise, this Taliban model of Kandahar model, which is dogmatic, very, very problematic. Anything that comes from Mullah Hebatullah and Ishaq Zahi, um, I, I am very, very skeptical that they can lead to anything progressive for Afghanistan under any circumstances if Pakistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, China, uh, Iran, Turkey, UAE, if these countries are not going to push back on the, these extremist uh, trends uh, because they're engaging with them, they will all be negatively influenced by this. that That's my point. Yes, uh, but can I ask you
0: more precisely what do you mean, how they should push, uh, or in terms of engagement that you highlight, uh, can we be precise a bit? So let's say we... We open up the dialogue, and the world has been open to dialogue with the Taliban. But uh, what exactly we should do, I mean, everyone, uh, the region and, and the U.S., in terms of dialogue, more than what they do, do you think that something is missing or uh, in that sense?
1: I think a lot is missing. Our, to start with, our current strategy and policy is not working because Taliban are step by step going in a direction that you so rightly pointed out. Uh, closing one institution, closing the Afghanistan, the university, um, Mullah Hebatullah and his gang, uh, which which is some of the most notorious extremists in their camp, are are gaining more power. The only change in there was when the Prime Minister of Qatar um, and I think the Crown Prince went and saw Hebatullah and put some of the things straight to him because without Qatar support, without UAE support and Turkey support. Um, this Afghan government, Taliban government, cannot run. They they are getting a lot of support from the region every day. UAE and Turkey are trying to get the big contract for the Kabul airport. My thinking is that if these countries, all these countries who have now economic interests, security interests as well, they should. I'm sure they are all convinced that girls have to go to school. If Pakistan, India. Russia, China, UAE, other countries, which all in their own countries are fully supportive of girls and women education. If they all go to Afghanistan with this one agenda, just one requirement, telling them, we'll continue to work with you the way we are working with you. Uh, The humanitarian assistance is taking place. Uh, There are regular trips and regular flights. Just look at the log of the airlines that are landing in Kabul. There's a daily international, some regional delegation, daily or weekly, I should say, which is in Afghanistan, they should tell them, we will stop these engagements if you're not allowed girls to go to school. Number one.
0: Hmm. But number still two- I answer, uh, there is no sign that Taliban may respond to this. I, it, I'm posing this as a matter of argument, not to, I, to, uh, to oppose you. But I mean, well, collectively, they have not visited Kandahar, But I mean, entire region is unified on the fact that Taliban should change certain things. But the response from Taliban was also one single sentence since day one. Do not interfere in our internal affairs. And even the recent visit of Qatar's prime minister, what had changed? Anything?
1: No. At times, like the Doha negotiations were happening, a lot was happening behind the scene. And when a lot is happening behind the scene, things may change slowly uh, at at various times. I think a lot of what we are hearing from the region countries is all rhetoric. Uh, when they say we want uh, Afghanistan to change. These are purely rhetorical statements for the global audience. I think they have not gone to Afghanistan by making a concerted case. For instance, the UAE and Turkey who want a deal uh, on the airport in Kabul, do you think if they go and tell them, we don't, and other countries also agree with them, um, that yes, none of us will take this opportunity to get a contract there. Let's all of us and go and tell them, there'll be no planes flying out from from kabul those kind of things rather than a threat of war the problematic thing is when west and nato goes again to them and say okay we are going to bomb your airport which they can that that, that would be going to a point which is i would say counterproductive at this time but the regional countries banking systems humanitarian issues india is offering them training to the bureaucrats from from uh, from afghanistan Pakistan is hugely investing in trying to get many students from Afghanistan. Taliban know in this day and age they need eight to ten billion dollars. They're getting two billion dollars from various checkpoints and local trade cases. Many people, there are demographic changes happening in Afghanistan. People from many regions are going close to Kabul because they think maybe they'll find something to eat. There is a humanitarian disaster waiting to happen in Afghanistan. In this scenario, Taliban, day after day, in my assessment, are under more pressure to engage. Maybe they'll not start with a girl's school. And that's an argument I have debated in the book as well. And I've explained it to many Western uh, audiences as well, uh, because there's a history of how Taliban view all outside uh, policy interventions. There's a long history, other other than Taliban also. Whenever there is an outside thing which looks like a Western ideal, that there's a big no. You are very right. They will initially say, and they have been saying, don't interfere. But there are other in this government who want things to change on minority issues, for example. The way previously they were dealing uh, with the minorities, whether it was Sufis or Shias, today it is it is different because there was pressure, maybe because Iran was working with them and there were other factors as well. So I am, I would not like to give up on the opportunity of going for a peaceful arrangement with taliban till it becomes absolutely necessary that the regional countries will have to use some threat or some use of force i want to give this chance of we tried we gave 20 years to a totally new way to change things around well, so
0: let me just to the last, as a last point, maybe uh, what I propose is, of course, not extremes that either we should go to the war against Taliban or completely abandon the country or abandon Taliban whatever we do. And of course, those who oppose um, a kind of uh, engagement, not a critical engagement, of course, but a g- engagement without a nuance also do not necessarily suggest an alternative war. Uh, the fact is that we have to critically think to what extent we have leverage. International community plus region has a leverage over Taliban to change few things. Um, because again, if we do not treat Taliban as an institution who have the tendency to become totalitarian and dogmatic, who oppose anything from outside, uh, it is not realistic to continue build on hopes hopes on nothing, uh, because it will really Worse in the situation, nothing will change on the ground. It's not just about women rights; it's about survival and suffering of every single human being. And the Taliban are really, I mean, irresponsible with that regard. So, I mean, solution, yeah, engagement, but we have to be very precise about what do we mean by engagement, because this the term engagement has been loosely used by by policymakers by intellectuals, uh, by those who are pro-Taliban, who, by those who are neutral. But we, ha- we are not very clear on what terms and what
1: framework. Anyway, uh, maybe your last point, and then we might come to the end of this episode. Most certainly. No, I think all your points are very valid. And I am uh, totally, um, I not only understand that, but um, I would say we're in the same boat in terms of our overall strategy. I agree. The, the word engagement has to be more clear. Maybe on the security side, it is clear. There are meetings between top intelligence and security officials from Taliban and United States. We know that from even the public knowledge. Yeah. Um, and that is leading to some pushback on ISK. That is one area. Yeah. Um, engagement, yeah. we, in, one reason why we lack a clear engagement policy is because at this time, um, everyone is dealing with them as a, at a as a bilateral. Once there is a regional approach and Taliban know that, oh, we are going to lose all our regional uh, relationships, that kind of engagement when a very clear-cut message comes, not from an outside big Western power, because that Taliban will use it for their projection saying, look, the Americans again want this. Look, the Brits, the French want this. The regional approach will have an impact if there is a consensus and if all the regional countries are on one page. Leverage comes when there is trust and trust comes when there is constant dialogue and constant meeting. That's what I mean. Constantly talk to them. That may lead to some on some humanitarian issues, some trust. That trust will get you leverage. That's the line I would like to pursue till the time Taliban show that they are now have shifted completely to become a transnational terrorist organization. And that needs a very different approach.
0: Thank you so much. There are lots of grounds that we have not covered. I think this issue is really big and we have to talk for hours, but uh, really grateful for your time accepting the invitation to speak with me on this episode. Uh, Have a nice day. And thanks to our listeners for listening to this episode. If you would like to share this with your circles on social media, please do. We will be back with you on next month. Have a nice time.